Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Brendan Playford, CEO and founder of Pingme, a financial data infrastructure platform that's raised over $18 million in funding. Brendan, thanks for chatting with me today. Great to meet you, Brett. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to diving into your questions and giving you some more background on what we're building at Pingme and the vision we have for a fairer, more accessible world for credit. Sounds good. Well, let's jump in. So before we begin talking about what you're building at Pingme, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so... I'm one of these sort of more non-traditional founders. You know, the fact that we're focused on with Pingme serving customers in emerging markets already kind of breaks a bit of a mold. So how did I get here for Pingme? I started off in the UK in a very, very underserved area of the UK. Access to education was pretty limited. Typically, people go and work in the local economy community as generally skilled worker jobs, and they wouldn't end up going to university or college. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to university later in life. It was really my access to higher education was limited because of my financial constraints and my families and went later on about 22, 23 years of age and finally started studying maths and physics, which was what I really wanted to do from a very young age. And throughout my kind of career, I've experienced you know going from a low income, I would say credit invisible subprime sort of market or individual. Mm-hmm. Coming out of university, moving out to the US and emigrating, you know, starting off in the US, a country where credit is so important, not having access to credit as well was really challenging and made me realize that there was a lot of problems along the way. Through my journey, I spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa. Through 2007 to 2013, I would go backwards and forwards as part of a company I had in the UK doing renewables around biofuels. We were essentially collecting edible oils. Mm-hmm. Uh, reprocessing them into the biodiesel industry. And part of that work took me to Tanzania in the years of 2007 to 2013. And I was out there helping a friend of mine called Alan set up self-sustainable systems or supply chains for edible oil-based feedstocks in sub-Saharan Africa, in Tanzania specifically. And while I was there, I saw mobile money through M-Pesa, this text-based payment system launch. And off the back of that, found myself often helping entrepreneurs we were working with in local communities with short-term capital constraints. So Alan will be working with a community that was doing sunflower production to make sunflower oil that Mm -hmm. we'd be looking to produce biofuel with, sort of post-peak oil. And the growers might need some machinery or extra working capital to get the feedstock to a market. I would often help with those kind of cash flow constraints and did this informally with several thousand dollars over the course of six or seven years. And it wasn't until like later in my career that I really felt drawn to solving a really massive problem globally. There's 3.3 billion people that have a lack of access to formal credit. It means that, you know, education can be held back and other sort of upwardly mobile things that come out of access to not just finance, but credit itself, are not available for about 3.3 billion people globally. And a huge number of these people are focused and located in sub-Saharan Africa. About 440 million 
of those individuals are spread across sub-Saharan Africa. And there's about 160 million of those between Nigeria and Kenya. And given the experience that I had in seeing entrepreneurs you know, get capital and actually do a lot of meaningful and productive work after they had these sort of small informal loans, they would go on to build businesses, more robust businesses, send their kids to school and have a better education. And it's a crazy reality that for every dollar you put into like Kenyan markets with women-founded companies, you see a $2.6 of GDP income or uplift. And it was in 2018 that my co-founder and I, my co-founder is Kate, mm-hmm. were thinking about ways in which we could unlock more access to capital for small businesses in emerging markets. We founded Pingmi, and Pingmi was founded with a vision to give everybody equal access to finance. And what we mean by that is people in these underserved emerging markets that typically use mobile money, text-based money on a mobile phone, a smartphone, to transact, of which there's a billion of those individuals, we could provide some alternative data that was pulled from their device to give some kind of credit score or credit analysis where up until then they've had zero. So like these individuals have had zero credit score. And we started building Pingme and we had a vision to kind of lend directly to these individuals. And as we were building our first kind of iteration of the mobile app, we realized that it may be better for us to take all of the data analysis and insights we're doing to build you know, scores and models for individuals in these markets and actually make those tools available to any local developer in either Kenya, Nigeria, or other markets where a developer can quickly come onto Pingme, integrate an SDK with their mobile app. The end user opts in to share data from their device, which is encrypted. We process that data into a set of insights and a score and a decision for the end user, and then feed that back with an API for a developer to consume and make a range of different use cases actionable from lending through to pre-qualification, segmentation, and many others, like helping the user understand their financial health is another good one. And that's how we arrived here and uh, been working on this for about four years, seeing a lot of impact from the number of users we're able to provide scores to and and data on and, you know, looking to build a new infrastructure for financial inclusion across mobile money markets, of which there's around, I think, 79 or so installations globally. And I'll stop there. Wow. That's super exciting. A few, you know, follow-up questions based on that. So when you're determining, you know, credit worthiness, what factors are you looking at and considering? Very early on, we looked at two or three incumbents in the space who had gone direct to consumer to offer loans. This was Kiva, based out of Berkeley, who was doing philanthropically driven loans based on, in a way, reputation, whether it be a social community that's sort of saying that an individual that has a business in a market is creditworthy, and then extending a philanthropic loan, that's what Kiva was doing, to Taller and Branch, two pretty big incumbents that have been using mobile phone-based data. Mm-hmm. So these are Android users that have been receiving uh, text message confirmation every time they make a transaction. So if you think about two-factor authentication, if you're logging into Google or something like that, you get pushed a notification to say that you've you know, attempted that login, here's a one-time passcode, and then afterwards you can sometimes get a text message to say, like, you just recently logged in from this location to this system. In the mobile money world, every single time you make a payment or make a transaction, like if I pay Brett a certain amount in Kenyan shillings or Nigerian Naira, 
I get a text message that confirms that transaction through a protocol called USSD. And what we started doing was, you know, looking at how these other people were using this data in their own models and think about how we could make that available to, you know, not just three players or two players, Taller and Branch, and then thinking about the way that Kiva was looking at this problem. Could we make that available to 100 or 200 new lenders to get more capital in the ecosystem? And what we do is we get the express consent of the end user to give us access to those notifications that they receive. We process and pass them in a private, privacy-centric way, mm-hmm. and then do machine learning on that data structure to give us insights into the credit worthiness of the individual and make that available to an end user. So we use this USSD-based financial notification information coupled with bank transaction data and loan outcome data to give a really, you know, from zero where the user is today to a very high accuracy predictive model that's able to predict and calculate the risk of default for an individual. Got it. You know, a couple of years ago, I used Kiva to do a loan to you know someone in Africa nice. who was you know trying to scale their you know I think their farm or something like that. And like I think it was a year later, I just got you know an email of okay, sorry, uh, it's gone. You know, the loan failed, didn't get paid back, and you know your money's gone. I'm like, oh, okay, that's like a, a pretty like bad first experience with this problem. Obviously, it's probably you know common for some to default, but on the topic of defaulting, then I'm guessing that's a huge risk for these financial institutions that are working with you, right? Because if the data happens to be incorrect, that could lead to a higher default rate? Yes, yeah, it can. And the one thing that we really, you know, having been in the lending space now for a pretty significant period of time, we work with tier one banks in these markets, fintechs, (laughs) and even credit bureaus as well to help make more robust scoring. You have a world where there's, you know, huge demand for for credit. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of credit worthy individuals that do have viable businesses. And you know, with the case of Kiva, the thing that they do in these situations is you, you get to have that as a tax write-off because it's a donation. And no, that does happen at times. And people using the platform are comfortable with the, the tax write-off sort of value. Mm-hmm. And for us, we really focus on providing a set of like decisioning resources for uh, one of our customers. So ultimately, the underwriting is done by our end user. And we have seen a very significant reduction in defaults across the customers that are using our product, anywhere from like 15 to 22%, which is very, very significant. But lending is about an entire process. And one thing that I find people really need to understand is a credit score is only one component of making a lending decision. You know, when you're on board a customer, you've got to verify identity. That's your step one to make sure that, you know, someone isn't using the same credit score, you know, five times. So identity verification is step one. Then step two, doing like a pre-qualification. So scoring someone and you know pre-qualifying very similar to what FICO does is mm-hmm. how our model functions. And then after that, getting additional proof from the borrower, whether it be in you know asset confirmation and further underwriting is the next step. And those steps are all parts and components of PME that we provide. And it's ultimately up to the lending institution to make the judgment on their own risk-based pricing using our data. So If, for example, a customer has very little data that can be surfaced, an end user, it's more unlikely that they would have a lending decision made based on a very thin file, as opposed to a user that has, you know, an extensive amount of history over a long period of time that builds up a far bigger track record, very much like FICO. So yes, there is obviously risks, but there's multiple points in like the lending cycle from 
onboarding to decisioning and then even to collections. And collections is one of the bigger points at which underwriting can fail. But decisioning is where we're focused right now on making the biggest impact for our customers and giving initial visibility on you know, going from, let's say, a credit bureau coverage of between 11 to 20% of the population mm-hmm. up to a coverage of 60 to 90%, which is what our platform provides, uh, really gives institutions much more visibility in that first step forward that they're doing. Got it. So it's really that bad in Africa that their coverage is that small. So there's an Experian, you know, let's say somewhere in Africa, there's an Experian and they are only covering, you said, what percentage of the population? The incumbent credit bureaus are TransUnion. TransUnion is one of the longest standing uh, credit bureaus in Africa. I think they've been there for over 100 years. And in addition to that, you've got smaller regional bureaus that are often owned by a parent, like in Nigeria. Uh, CRC is the credit bureau, and they're owned by Dun & Bradstreet. So they do exist. There's often multiples, like there's two or three in Kenya, there's two or three in Nigeria, and then TransUnion has one of the biggest coverage uh, or footprints along with Dun & Bradstreet. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you will find that the actual official statistic is somewhere in the 20% range for coverage across the whole market, as opposed to 70%, which is, I think, where we are in the US context. So yeah, coverage is very, very low. It's driven largely by the lack of reporting of good borrowers is a big problem. Mm-hmm. So with PingMe, what a customer benefits from is seeing all of the good behavior that a customer has done from this particular notification data. When you repay a loan off, it automatically gets fed back. That is kind of a voluntary system in the credit bureau space where the feedback of good behavior is much, much lower than the feedback of negative behavior. So you have this cohort of users that's kind of blacklisted in the bureau, which isn't actually helping like upward mobility because the good data isn't being fed back up because a lot of a lot of lending incumbents view the good data as a moat to retain their best customers and like to keep hold of it. And you know, part of what we do here is also democratizing those those good outcomes. Um, so as it creates a fairer playing field for the end user as well. Got it. Very cool. And if you can share this, what's the average loan size and what's the average interest rate? It really varies. So you can have the micro loan market, which is in the sub $100 market. You're looking at maybe anywhere from $20 all the way up to 100 That's for a lot of like microfinance banks will cater to that micro loan market. But on average, we see somewhere between $250 to a couple of thousand dollars for a micro, small or medium sized business in these markets. And interest rates vary from, you know, we're generally seeing a reduction in interest rates across the space driven by more competitive loan offers. So four years ago, when we started, interest rates could be anywhere up to 300% annually, very, very high. And it was because there's only a couple of players in the market giving loans. And what we thought our hypothesis was, if we build a platform that can have, you know, 100 lenders on, competition is going to increase, those rates are going to go down. And as we're seeing more lending adopted in the markets by you know, players like ourselves doing this and banks extending more loans, we're seeing those rates come down. So we're seeing them come down. Before, I would have told you anywhere from 15 to 300%. Now I can tell you it's anywhere from like 5 to 6%. There is still some price gouging going on, but we tend to see it's more in the 30 to 50% range on the upper end for people using our platform. And that's Mm -hmm. a little higher than the maximum interest rate that's legally allowed in the US. The maximum legal interest rate in the US is 34%. That's determined by regulation. But it's a little bit higher than that we see is typical from that kind of 6% level up to the kind of 50% level. 
Got it. Makes sense. Wow. 300%. That's about as predatory as you can possibly get. That's insane. Yeah. And just recently in Kenya, the I think as recent as this last week, the Kenyan regulatory authority has really clamped down on digital lenders to increase a couple of things, like increase the transparency of the good outcomes, the good loans being reported, and then kind of reducing this sort of blacklist mentality and then you know, price gouging or predatory behavior on those that are least credit worthy to offset the default. So there's really great progress in the space. It means that you know more capital will flow into the space because it'll be more trusted. There's be more visibility from platforms like ourselves, which create like fairer competition. And it's a really interesting, exciting time for like the next three or four years of growth in the continent, which you know is bringing capital to hundreds of millions of users. That if given the opportunity, they can really build something great for themselves and their families. Nice. That's amazing. And you know, one of the things that I've heard from friends who have you know tried to do business in Africa is it can be a very difficult place to do business as an outsider. Have you found that to be the case? And you know, how are you treated there? And you just how do you navigate that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. So at the organization, Kate, my co-founder, and I have been very, very intentional from day one building a distributed team where we have certain resources in North America, but a very focused, highly skilled team of individuals that we really empower at an executive and management level on the continent. So very early on, Kate and myself as co-founders brought on board a woman by the name of Lorraine. Lorraine is on our management team as a C-level executive. She essentially oversees all of the African team, chief strategy officer that you can think about like CEO Africa in a way, if we're kind of, you know, getting to specifics over titles. And us making that key hire and bringing Lorraine on as a key team member of like the founding team has been critical for scaling local teams, both in Nigeria and in Kenya. So we've doubled down on our focus of developing and scaling our in-country teams very, very early on. Mm -hmm. And the benefit of that is we've brought in key players that do have connections in the market and aren't outsiders. So we're able to like adopt a Silicon Valley, like high velocity rapid like product iteration mindset with a core team of like engineers sales team integration managers that have come from some of the best of breed like companies out of africa paystack flutterwave interswitch you name it we've got people that work those organizations and a and a really incredible talented people and it's been investing in people locally and empowering local people that have enabled us to get a wedge in had we not done that, it would have been incredibly challenging. And we've really built the company with that philosophy. Not just making a difference with the end user, but making a difference from like how you build a company, how you build a business and investing very, very intentionally in local talent. Got it. And do you spend a lot of your time then in Africa? I'm guessing that's a uh, a very long flight from where you are. I, I flew out of LAX once to South Africa, and it was, I think, a 34-hour flight in total, which was insane. Are you taking 34-hour yeah. flights all the time? Or what's your schedule look like there? It's been an interesting couple of years with COVID. The last trip we did to Lagos was around two months ago. And we just got to Kenya to work with a large bank that we're integrating with at the moment, one of the, the tier one banks in Kenya. We're onboarding at the moment. We'll be going out there to finish that onboarding with myself, my co-founder, and the rest of the team. So in normal times, two to three times a year for about you know anywhere from two weeks to two months, we're, we're on the continent. And, and COVID definitely shortened things and made the interaction much more you know, remote focused. And I think that definitely helped us, you know, having deals done over Zoom for two years was 
I think, honestly, a pretty big advantage and sort of help to scale more quickly. And yeah, you know, the flight via London is great. I get to see my family on the way back, uh, maybe for a night in London, but it really isn't that big of a commitment going out there to work on the content with the team. Nice. Now let's switch gears here a bit and talk about market categories. How do you think about market categories? Is this you know a new category that you're creating, transforming an existing one? What are your thoughts? I think it's really interesting. If I was to put a like a really clear cut definition of what we do at Pingme is we're a data processing company and we do machine learning as a service. And there's a lot of buzzwords in there, right? So what does that really mean? It means that we're able to provide infrastructure that's typically out of reach for a developer who normally only gets access to it if they've got a large budget and specialist engineering talent to do what is really complicated data engineering work Mm -hmm. and machine learning work. Now, from our perspective, you know, that is defining a new category on the continent. We've seen companies do this very effectively in the US context, you know, be data as a service companies where you're not having to build a specialist team around, you know, AWS data pipelines. Mm -hmm. You're using like Databricks to do your data analysis and so on and so forth. So for us, you know, this is a new category of data analytics on the continent. Our entry point is with credit. So, you know, transforming this one particular type of data into credit insights, because we saw that as like a major pain point in the market and one where there was a huge opportunity for impact and uplift. But we're now starting to see other use cases coming out of this. Like, how can we help e-commerce businesses in on the continent optimize, you know, supply chain analytics to make sure that their merchants get products in the right way to support their merchants' cash flow? So as their merchants are really successful when they're selling goods. So I think it is a new category of like the way in which data is used on the continent to make more intelligent, higher scalability companies. And I'm really excited for what that can unlock, both from talent on the continent, being able to leverage data in a way that has typically been out of reach unless you're a highly funded venture-backed African company. And sort of re-democratizing that machine learning data layer for as many companies as possible is is really exciting. And and honestly, starting to now go beyond credit to unlock other use cases is good. But yeah, data processing is is a relatively new category. There are some incumbents that have been doing it as a service for a while with kind of hands-on white glove experience. But this is sort of the first like SaaS-based data processing infrastructure. Got it. And you mentioned buzzwords there. You know, one of the buzzwords that I haven't heard so far in this interview is, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain. I feel like in the community, that's, you know, what they love to talk about is, you know, how Bitcoin blockchain can, you know, serve the needs of the unbanked and underbanked. Is there an element of Bitcoin or blockchain here at all? Or what's the situation there? Yeah, it's a good question. Just a bit of context. I've been in the Web3 crypto space since 2013. I was a very early miner, participated in the ICO. I've worked in the Web3 space concurrently to ping me for a long time on open source projects and and sort of have a protocol that is worked on concurrently to ping me that is in the Web3 space. It's really interesting where I see the biggest opportunity for us with ping me, we, we do have a Web3 strategy, is to bring liquidity from Web3 into the balance sheet of the lenders. So you can imagine a world where you, Brett, are a lender you're doing invoice financing to gas installation engineers in Lagos. So there's a lot of oil and gas there. You have a customer who is providing services for maintaining gas pipelines, and you're invoicing on 30 days to like a large corporation, and you want to advance that cash flow. Well, you could, in a future state, plug into PingMe, 
as Brett the lender doing this kind of structured invoice financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could get your decisioning, your analytics, your credit risk monitoring, and then access capital. And that capital will be accessed from Web3 through a funding pool that aggregates together, let's say it's USDC assets on the back end. And you almost then have a data as a service and a capital as a service platform. And that'll likely be our next step at PingMe. And that's sort of a glimpse into the future. The future is building confidence with underwriting and analytics using what we have today, and then using that to enable lenders to build and extend balance sheets because Mm -hmm. the capital coming in has conviction over and the data that's being used to underwrite these loans and, and processes for risk analysis. Got it. Very cool. Now let's talk about traction. How much traction have you seen so far since launching? Traction has been interesting. You know, like in the African market, it's a patient game. You have to play a long game within an ecosystem that you're finding your ecosystem fit. So early on, we had a lot of very rapid interest and uptake from all of the kind of major fintechs in either Nigeria or Kenya. And where we saw like the, I think the slowest adoption was in the large institutions, the banks, the credit bureaus. And we've had a strategy where we've been targeting both the fintechs from like a self-service perspective. Their biggest pain point is resource allocation and moving quickly. Mm-hmm. And we've learned a lot with the fintechs out there and deliver a really high value service. And where we've really seen like the most recent traction today is with the large incumbent banks. And these are banks that want to create more intelligence around their scoring systems and risk models, Mm -hmm. incorporate new data sets, and also extract more data from their existing systems. And we've been patiently working on those relationships for about 18 months and finally now having integrations go over the line with a couple of major incumbents. So we're seeing the fruits of our labor come to fruition, but it's a patient game and, and sometimes velocity can be slow given the market, but well worth it for the impact we believe we're having and the opportunity at the end of this to kind of be the infrastructure that powers this new wave of economic uplift over the next mm-hmm. five to 10 years on the continent. Amazing. Well, speaking of opportunity, let's talk about funding. I know you'd raise an $18 million round or over $18 million in funding so far. Why do you think investors are so excited about this opportunity? Yeah, we did a seed round before last year and then then our Series A last year, which was $15 million. What I think the biggest insight and excitement we've had from our investors is the fact that we do have an enterprise strategy on the continent, you know, being embedded and getting traction with the you know major financial institutions. For example, this one incumbent we're integrating with at the moment unlocks seven markets from the one market. You know, having that enterprise strategy while it's like long in the making is really why we were, I think, attracted to several of our kind of key investors, knowing that that was a long-term play and that we were de-risking the length of that with our kind of fintech developer strategy has been really embraced. Impact as well is a really big thing. Like the alignment of incentives with myself and the team and Kate around, you know, really building a platform for good as well as generating return for investors and having massive impact as well is one that really resonates. You know, we've got hundreds of thousands of users that have shared their data with us. And that creates a crazy moat around the business right now in terms of the data we have and the kind of proprietary models we can build. Mm -hmm. So I think a combination of like the way we're going to market, the team we've assembled and the experience in the space, along with, you know, the early traction and now the solidification of that traction around enterprise has really got our investors excited along with, you know, just the impact that this does, like having mission aligned 
vision-oriented investors has been one of our key things of structuring our cap table and, and grateful to have those people on our cap table. Very nice. And if we look at impact over the next five, 10 years, how would you describe you know, the impact that you want Ping Me to have over that time period? You know, if I was to look to the future, I would like to see a world where we've expanded from Africa into all mobile money countries where individuals are, you know, empowered to access capital from a range of lenders all on a fair common substrate. That substrate being this kind of data layer. And capital can flow from a range of funding sources uh, that is tailor-made and custom-made to their needs in a more decentralized environment that is more equitable to all. So this means, you know, reducing the number of people that are on that 3.3 billion list, mm-hmm. you know, getting that as close to zero as quickly as possible, and seeing massive unlocking of economic opportunity. You know, having seen myself go through from being held back and constrained going to university to having capital unlocked through the blockchain space in 2013, which was like my moment to kind of grow. Mm-hmm. The more we can give that to more people to get education, build businesses, the more prosperous, fairer world we have where incentives are more aligned. So a fairer world where of those 3.3 billion people, there are more people going to university, getting educations, better businesses being built and much more rapid growth of GDP in a lot of these countries as a result of that investment. Amazing. Well, Brendan, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover today. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter. Also jump onto our website and subscribe to our newsletter. We are going to be opening up a Discord developer community to kind of tap into, you know, developers that want to build on our platform. We're running lots of different initiatives there. So come onto our website, connect with us through Intercom. If you're looking to work with us as well, we have a careers page that outlines our culture, how we work, and we do have some open roles in product right now. So reach out to us. We're open, friendly, love to hear from you and you can keep track that way. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for your time and thanks so much for sharing your vision. This is all super exciting. All right. Thank you so much, Brett. All right. Cheers. Take care.